welcome to Podcast 147, and it's a little different this week, but more on that later. Of course, we have a podcast number that anyone who watches or plays snooker will appreciate, as it's the maximum break, something that I was only 120 away from once. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and I'm trying to record this with a dog on my lap, which is not the easiest of things, but it's starting to feel a bit more normal again. School's back in here in Scotland, and summer's almost over. There are some events taking place in the next couple of months, but the more I look into it, the more unsure that I am. Having to take a test to be allowed back into the UK, another test as soon as you get back. I'm not sure if everyone's going to be wearing masks at events, which makes interviews a bit tricky as well. So lots of questions and not too many answers. I did manage to get a nice walk in this weekend, although it was in thick fog, so the top of the hill could easily have been the top of Mount Everest. Other than the time it took to get there, the temperature, and the fact that I could still breathe normally. But it was nice, in spite of not being able to see anything, to walk with no one else around, as usually it would have been packed. I was also quite proud of myself as I managed to make a cheesecake. Not so much proud of the fact that I made it, but more that the fact that it was actually edible. Having said that, I'm not exactly the quickest in the kitchen, and probably not the most attentive either, because I tend to change the recipes and approximate a lot of the measurements, and usually the floor is covered in all kinds of things from sugar to spices. Good thing I'm not an architect. It's funny because that was the job that was recommended to me and my parents by the school all those years ago, when all I wanted to be was a tennis player or a writer and photographer, or something to do with languages. I can still hear the words now that no one can be a tennis player and no one from a poor housing estate is ever going to be a writer. I'm not so sure that that pessimism is the approach these days, although I'm sure that the opposite, that you can be anything that you want to be, is that realistic either. As an example, there's no way I could have ever been a ballet dancer, unless of course it was in a comedy routine. And so at the top of the podcast, I mentioned it's a little different this week, and that's because we have just the one interview. But no, it's not all over in 10 minutes. This is a deeper look at climate change and food with John Ruff, Chief Science and Technology Officer at the Institute of Food Technologists in Chicago. I could have cut the interview and made it shorter, but I thought the topic is so big and the content was so interesting that I'd just dedicate the entire podcast to the interview. Of course, we do also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. So let's take a look at the headlines from some of the articles that made the news this week on Dairy Reporter. Hello Pack launched its Pure Pack Essence aseptic carton. First Milk invested in the Agrocarbon Company. And the action on sugar group in the UK has slammed the sugar content of most children's yogurts. We had a couple of articles about Nestle. It has expanded its R&D facilities in Singapore, and it also published its report on its breast milk substitutes marketing practices. EMI in Switzerland issued its first half 2021 results. The USDA assistance for US dairy farmers is going to total more than $2 billion dollars, and we had a special newsletter last week on high-protein product trends in the dairy industry with five great articles, so those are definitely worth checking out. In Germany, Plantineers has developed products for animal-plant-based hybrids. We had an article on whether or not seaweed could be the next source of material for packaging, and the California Milk Advisory Board has launched its third pizza contest. 
I don't think I'd have any chance whatsoever of winning a pizza making contest, but I might be in with a shout in a pizza eating contest. I'll see what they say. We also had an article on the looming plastic tax in the UK, with a survey showing most companies don't even know there's a new tax coming, while another study shows that consumers are heaping expectations on both manufacturers and retailers. So a great mixture of articles there for you to check out at dairyreporter.com. So let's get to this week's interview. Everyone I think is concerned about climate change right now and I would imagine most countries in the world would have experienced some signs of it, whether it's fires, pollution, drought, lack of water in some places and devastating floods in others. Of course, food is what allows us all to survive, but it also has an impact on climate change, with some sectors contributing more than others to the issues. Most companies around the world have set targets to reach net zero, whether that's in 10, 20 or 30 years' time. I'm sure many of you have at least seen the news about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, which basically says we're at a critical point right now. So what to do? Well, one organisation at the forefront of looking at food and climate change is the Institute of Food Technologists. It's a global organisation with its headquarters in Chicago, and it's there that we had a long and interesting conversation with the IFT's John Ruff, who is the Chief Science and Technology Officer. This is a very emotional subject and also very topical and very important. I wonder if you could give me some background on what work IFT is doing on the effects of food on climate change currently. Yeah, definitely, Jim. Um, you know, IFT's uh, sort of mission and vision uh, is all about uh, ensuring that sound science is used in the development of uh, safe, uh, sustainable, nutritious and, and affordable food supply. And that's been our sort of mantra over a number of years. And it applies across the board from, uh, you know, our diets to our uh, sourcing of our food. And certainly today, it's very relevant to the topic of climate change. You know, the best way I could probably kick off, I love to sort of go back in history. If you go back in history, for most of mankind, we've been fighting to find enough food to survive. That's uh, been the history of the million years or so of mankind. And it's only in the last 50 years, in most places, we've had a surfeit or enough. And certainly we still don't have enough in many places. But if you go back to that early stages, you know, the first food processing was uh, accidental serendipity. It was cooking uh, by fire that I think most people believe was, was an accident. Other developments that went on sort of in terms of preservation techniques to preserve food, all of those were to get enough food to get nutritious food to survive and build the race. And uh, it's ironical that as we've got of over time, being able to get more and more food and, and learn more about it. But many of the things that our ancestors did without knowing the science behind it have turned out to be pretty good things to do. Now we understand what cooking does. Now we understand what preservation does. And that's sort of what IFT focus on is, is ensuring that we understand what we're doing when we take an agricultural commodity and turn it into something that is more nutritious, more safe and so forth. I'll come back to the immediate thing, but I'd like to make a stop off about 200 years ago. There was an English economist called Malthus who sort of his name is, is used some, with some disregard because of something called the Malthusian theory, which was that our population was about to explode geometrically and we would not be able to produce enough food. And he was right on half of it. Our population did explode geometrically. He was wrong on the other because the advances in agricultural science, in crop breeding and preservation technologies allowed us to provide enough food. And so now we get to today. Well, now 
Malthus is sort of equal and half right again, because what we hadn't realized back then, and we only realized and accepted in the last few years, is that the actual effect of growing food and of processing it and distributing it is in fact the largest single source of greenhouse gases. And yet the irony is those greenhouse gases are actually a headwind for us to produce more food. And so we're almost back to the Malthus theory again, is that if we just try to grow more food in the way we're doing it at the moment, we will actually not succeed because we will just accelerate the environmental uh, implications with greenhouse gases and other effects, and we'll never achieve the goal. So that's sort of where at the end of the day, agricultural food science comes in because we have to do things in a different way to succeed. So I know that's a very generic answer, but you know, sort of I think sets the stage perhaps for some of the other questions that I know you want to ask. It's funny, I was having a similar discussion today with somebody with respect to technology and how far we've advanced and all the things that we have that we don't want to lose. Does the same apply to food that we've come so far with the foods that we eat and the development of food that we really don't want to go back to or change what we do eat? You know, I, there are always things that if you go back and look, we, we probably can learn from. I remember, you know, Part of why I started off with history, I'm a great believer. If you sort of look into history, you can learn a lot. You know, my experience is very rare that actually doing the same thing we did in the past is going to work in the current environment. And I would argue, uh, you know, that probably somebody could pink, think of some examples. But in most cases, I think the answer is no. You know, that's part of the problem that we've, I think, faced. The Green Revolution sort of, uh, you know, helped us through, you know, the 50s period and, and took 2 billion people out of poverty and out of hunger. But what it did is we basically took more land use and we grew more crops. And if we keep doing it that way, or even if we go back to the idea of growing things in small holdings and lots, the irony is those are usually more inefficient. Much as people don't like to sort of think this uh, because we like to think of local food and small producers as being better to source from and being more environmentally friendly. The efficiency of how we produce things is the, by far the most important aspect. You know, the largest source within the food chain from the ground to our mouths, from farm to fork, as people like to say, you know, the largest contributions to the largest challenges are the land that is being used for crops or for animals instead of for trees and other things that will absorb carbon dioxide and help the atmosphere. And then the second part is actually the process of growing or feeding animals. The processing, the distribution of food is by far the smallest part in most cases. Not always true. I'm not trying to argue we should go for bigger, larger farms per se, but I'm saying we have to be careful not to sort of let our our imaginations and our wishes become reality here. And in terms of the numbers, we hear quite often that food's responsible for approximately 25% of global greenhouse gas emissions. What's the breakdown of that? Is one sector worse than others? You can measure this in two ways. And, you know, the larger the sector, the larger the greenhouse gases. But what's really, I think, much more important is since we're producing these categories to consume and to feed us, it's, you know, on a sort of comparable basis, whether it's a, you know, calorie consumed or what you use is is what categories of products are the highest contributors. And I think it's pretty well known to most people that, you know, meat and particularly uh, beef, the red meats first, followed by the others, are the, the most significant. There is an irony that actually, you know, the benefit of plants in terms of um, in most cases, they will produce calories and nutritious food with less environmental impact. 
there is actually a tie-in here with some of our nutritional challenges on the other side of the equation where not just getting enough to eat, but eating either too much food or eating the wrong foods and not having a nutritious diet. Generally speaking, a more nutritious diet tends to have a lower impact on the, on the environment. And again, people can clearly find examples where that's not true, but that is a generalization. So, you know, the trend today from animal-based proteins to protein, certainly in the Western world, and the fact that that's been established in, in the rest of the world for a long time, is a beneficial benefit here. We look at advances in science and we're starting to see lab-grown food, lab-grown meat, lab-grown yeah. dairy, uh, some of which is from plant-based sources, but some of it is just done through replication so that you're getting the exact same products only from a different source. How important are some of these new technologies going to be or are currently? One of the things to be careful of here is, and there has some, been some criticism in the media about this, is that some of these are being positioned as being you know, environmentally friendly. And you know they may be in the long run, but the energy consumptions that are often required to this and we all know that energy is, you know, a pretty large source of ultimately um, the environmental greenhouse gas effect. Um, it can be pretty large. So it's kind of unclear at the moment, you know, how these will stack in. They will certainly be more favorable than meat produced uh, through an animal. But whether they're actually going to be more favorable than plant-based is probably not as clear. You know, my guess is that we'll end up with a combination of all of these. I don't think we're going to see meat go away. I don't think we're going to see milk from cows go away. Uh, I'm still a big consumer of milk. I don't think we're going to see uh, cell base become the only thing. And I don't think plant proteins. I think it's a combination. But, you know, I was thinking about you were asking earlier and you sort of repeated there, you know, what what are the scientific, what are the food scientific advances that can help us? You know, one that really could help is food waste. I think most people, again, know that sort of little statistic that if we didn't waste any food from farm to fork, we actually have enough food today to feed the population in 2050, if not 2100. Now, that's theoretically impossible, but we boy, we could do a better job than we're doing at the moment. And a significant part of that is lost at the farm. And a significant part of that is lost in the last part from the supermarket through to us and in our own homes or in our restaurants, particularly in the Western world, we tend to lose or waste more food at that part than in the in the growing part. Although, again, a caveat, there are some pretty significant losses in, for instance, fruit and vegetables that are grown in the United States. There are often 25 to 30% of the crop is thrown away there. So the whole process is one where there are real opportunities. And that's an area where the food industry has done a lot of work within its own sphere. But the irony is the bigger parts, we often don't address as seriously. And there are some real opportunities there. Um, one of the things IFT has, has done over many years and continues to do is to use our, um, our volunteer base and, and people, particularly people who are retired or students, in volunteer roles to go out to some of the developing countries and, and really show them how to apply what are relatively, by Western world standards, fairly simple food processing techniques to preserve foods at source, which have some pretty major benefits because not only do they provide more food for that population who are badly in need of it, they actually can often produce a value-added product that can ultimately become a, a market opportunity for sale, produce more wealth. And since poverty is you know, the largest single source of hunger, that in itself is a tremendous asset. You know, on the other end of the scale, there's a lot of work being done today, not just within the large food companies and the established food companies, as well as with a lot of startup people who are looking at ways to take waste products. How can you extract valuable ingredients from them? How can you use them in different ways? And so 
that's sort of some of the examples of how the science of food and our understanding of food can, I think, help this problem. The studies that are taking place in the area of climate change and food, a lot of people and a lot of groups interpret those differently. What are the findings of the studies and, and how do we interpret those so that we can all, if not agree on them, be able to utilize them in a positive way instead of arguing over them? That's a great question. Again, I'll give you a little bit of John Ruff personal history. My first involvement really in the environment in any major way was when I was working in, in Switzerland um, almost 30 years ago now. You know, the Swiss were probably, um, you know, and the Germans, the Northern Europeans were very much in the vanguard. But ironically, back then, our assessments of environmental impact were so simplistic that, in a way, we focused on the wrong things. Now, what we did was good. I mean, that was when the whole idea of packaging came in. The Europeans were the leaders in sort of recycling of packaging and minimizing packaging, and that's expanded. And that's still a major area of effort. And it's a good thing to do. But it certainly helped the environment. But it is a relatively small piece of the pie. It was driven by the fact that we were looking at the environmental impact in a very simplistic way. To your point, we've almost become so complicated. We've got so many different ways of looking at it. To be fair, though, to the people who work in this area and the people with way more expertise on these techniques than I am, but I'm very familiar with them, there are so many factors. I mean, when we talk about greenhouse gases, what are we talking about? Most people think about carbon dioxide. In fact, there is a sort of a, a way that nowadays people use to express the total greenhouse gas impact in carbon dioxide equivalents. But carbon dioxide is only one of those gases. Most people have heard of methane from animals. That's the second one. Uh, the nitro-containing compounds, uh, nitrous oxide is another one. It is a question of how you measure and, and put those together. But I think nowadays it's not that difficult to go and sort of I've, I've done it when I'm trying to update myself. The web is a wonderful device if used properly. Look across and look at the different techniques. And there is a fair consensus of the sorts of techniques that give you comparisons of food. You know, I, I don't think anybody goes out of their way to try and deliberately um, give false information. But yes, I think people sometimes will pick an aspect, an attribute um, that might be more favorable to them. But overall... I think we've got a lot better than we were in the early days I'm talking about, about how to measure, recognizing the complexity of it and recognizing that in effect, there's something we can do probably at every stage in the chain here. On a similar note, there are many companies with targets and goals, some of it's 2030, some of it's 2050. And there has been some criticism when it's 2050 that this is just too far into the future and too little too late. Do you view that as negative or do you think that if companies are trying to do something that it has to be positive because they're doing something? Well, I, first of all, I mean, I, I would never criticize somebody for trying to do something good. I mean, uh, maybe one can give them constructive advice. And I think in some cases, some of the advice is constructive advice. Sometimes it is, frankly, you know, I hate to say it, but equally biased opinion that is just, you know, motivated by some some bigger issues behind it. But, you know, I would advocate and support every company should have and pretty much all of them have developed environmental goals. Most of the ones I've seen, and I tend to probably see the larger company ones, you know, have a series of goals from, you know, the, the relatively immediate short one to five year, which is the usual strategic plan time frame, to the longer term, recognizing there are some things that will take so long to do. So I think we have to applaud them. I would certainly not be opposed to continuing to challenge companies to move faster. But having said that, go back to what I said earlier, this is only one piece of the pie. And in fact, it is relatively speaking, the smallest piece of the pie. 
So, I mean, th those same critics should be really looking at the other parts of the chain, the food chain, and sort of look at what can be done there and how we can accelerate activities uh, there. As I said, I've already sort of mentioned a few things people often misunderstand. I mean, you know, I talked about the homegrown versus the larger scale and the inefficiencies there. You know, one of the other ones is around the whole aspect of organic farming. I mean, organic farming is grown tremendously. A lot of people choose that out of choice for reasons, some of which are sound and some of which I think are not fully understood. The environmental benefit of, of organic farming, you know, is one that probably is not very well established. In fact, you know, there are aspects of organic farming which are great. I mentioned nitrous oxide and fertilizers. We have a tendency in some places to over-fertilize, particularly in the far in, the, in Asia, even in the US in some places. If we over-fertilize, we have an incredibly negative effect on the environment. That's part of the, one of the largest sources within the growing stage is the fertilizer peak. On the other hand, if we don't fertilize enough, then we will not get the yields that we need. And as I sort of said before, we will effectively have an even bigger impact on the environment because we'll be using more land and growing more crops and so forth. So it is such a complex thing that I think the danger is that some people in their desire to criticize oversimplify it. The criticism that people are using, you know, simplifying the data, you know, maybe companies or organizations or trade groups are doing it to support their position can equally be applied to um, some of the critics who talk about this is the solution. There is really no single solution. It is across the board. It is everybody from governments to consumer groups, to companies, to consumers themselves and what they do that have to be involved in this. We tend to always be sort of falling into, I think, camps where we're sort of defending our particular interest area and criticizing another one instead of recognizing that at the end of the day, it's across the whole board. And then I think there's also that argument extends to things like packaging, where you have the war against plastic, which in some respects, I think people are taking that to the extreme and taking it so literally that plastic has become an evil word when it's also responsible for reducing food waste. So there's, again, there's not really one solution. That's a great example. This conversation, you know, is about climate change. And, you know, my comments are on climate change. And when I made the comment about 30 years ago where we didn't necessarily pick the wrong thing because we did a lot of good work in the packaging area or collectively around the world. But that work has probably had less effect on the climate change, but it has had an impact. And there is still, I think, opportunities to have an impact on many of the other issues. And, you know, I get frustrated every time I take out my recycling about the amount of stuff that I've got. You know, why do I have all this cardboard and whatever? I mean, you know, I mean, we all get frustrated by that. But certainly in the case of plastics, there are some very serious other related issues that are certainly all around the environment. You know, the other piece that occurs to me as you raise that point is I've talked predominantly about the greenhouse gas impacts, but water and water usage is another major challenge. I think, I mean, I think people realize we're short of water, especially in the U.S. at the moment with much publicity. But, you know, the amount of water in the world that is, is actually consumable and drinkable and available is rapidly decreasing and that's becoming an increasing challenge and and so you know the ability to grow crops in places with less water is one that is becoming more important so you know we're facing the impact of climate change you know at the moment if you look at where the majority of food is grown it's sort of in a band between the tropics basically and then past the tropics but as climate change hits 
a lot of what we've produced today is going to have to move either further south or further north. In the southern hemisphere, there isn't much land. And so, you know, we're going to run out of places unless we learn how to sort of grow things on, on the ocean, which, of course, you know, yes, we can do that, actually, in terms of some techniques. But between, you know, available land, water and the impact of greenhouse gases, as I've said a couple of times, you know, we have to sort of dramatically change everything. It is a multi-stakeholder challenge. And as I've said, I think food science can play a major role, um, certainly in terms of preventing waste, of finding better ways to use crops that are more efficient to use. I mean, many of the crops that we consume today need needed significant understanding of, of the sort of chemistry and science behind them to be able to provide them in a way that they're nutritious and, and valuable to us. So there is so much opportunity here. And, and I think if we sort of spend more time looking at the collaborative opportunities and perhaps a little less on sort of um, criticizing each other, we will certainly succeed in my mind. I was just reading yesterday how Lake Mead for the Nevada and California, Arizona is down to its lowest ever level. And then we are seeing natural disasters like fire, drought, deep freezes in places that have never had freezing before. It all sounds very gloom and doom. How do we move towards positivity and getting around some of those issues? I've always been an optimist. I, I believe just like Malthus turned out to be half right and half wrong, I think the doomsayers are going to be equally half right and half wrong. The human race is incredibly versatile and uh, we will figure it out, not without more challenges, more arguments and debates, I'm sure. But I think, you know, I, I do believe we will, because right? I think we know so much more. That is one of the beauties of having the scientific understanding, whether it be in agri-science or food science. It's one of the beauties of actually having data. You know, we like to talk about data and artificial intelligence and big data today. You know, the data we've got has made it a lot easier to be more objective about the environmental impact to your earlier question. I mean, there are now reasonably well good agreement on where the biggest impacts are what are the biggest crops you know i don't think we have to sort of totally change and expect everybody in the world to totally change their eating habits as i said before i think we will continue to eat a variety of different foods and those who want to specialize and you eat more of one than the other can do that but i think you know there are opportunities for both the existing products and offerings and way we bring food to market to continue as well as bringing newer uh, some of the newer technologies uh, whether it be in those sort of meat alternative areas or, or other techniques I think they're all going to play a role. And again, I think that the collaboration between the groups, which incidentally I am seeing so much more of, one of the things that we've been quite involved in, I've personally been involved in an IFT over the last six months, has been the UN food summits around food, nutrition, sustainability. And, and that's an area where, you know, there is is growing collaboration going on um, within the different stakeholders, as I was alluding to before. So we will see this through. You know, I'm not sure what the next century's challenge will be, but there'll probably be another one that to face by then. There'll be another version of the Malthusian problem, I think, by, by that time. But I think uh, hopefully I will see this one at least on its way to being solved. Because of some of those issues and the interpretations by different groups, do you think that people are getting more or less trusting in companies? Because I think that some of the bigger companies often get accused of again greenwashing or not giving the full facts well certainly i spent you know 40 years in the food industry and i i lived through the era when generally speaking if a food company said something there was a high level of trust and i watched the polls and the ratings of how 
you know, it went from um, people trusting governments, food companies, to people trusting, you know, their buddy on the internet. It was disturbing and it still is disturbing to some way. Um, having said that, I think, as you've alluded, in some cases, some of that was probably self-inflicted in some cases. And I think one of the things I do see today is I think most of the food companies have recognized to the degree that they maybe not intentionally, but that led people sort of to not trust some of the things they were saying in terms of the way they were presenting things. They have become transparent and open in a way that never existed. And the ability to do that, I mean, the ability now that most companies are starting to apply by using whether it be QSR codes or whatever to provide data on the on the sourcing and the origins of their products and how they're used. But yeah, it is an enormous issue. It's one that, as I think I alluded earlier, it's part of the IFT mission and vision is that we believe that if we don't accept as a society that, you know, the benefits that we've had that going back thousands of years, even when we didn't understand the science, but the benefits we've had from processing of food and from understanding the science and applying the science in smart and, and sensible ways, if we don't recognize and do that, then we will, you know, have an added challenge to the problems we're dealing with today. But again, you look at the dairy industry as, you know, think of when pasteurization was first brought out. I mean, that was like a, you know, almost a demon technology that people didn't want to use. And whilst there are still a few people who sort of uh, to advocate raw milk, uh, you know, that is uh, pretty much uh, accepted today. So many of the things that when they are first introduced feel to people like they are a little strange and people often take advantage and maybe neg in a negative way, ultimately, I think, do come to get accepted in a better way. And I, again, I think, you know, we will get there. But yeah, there is still a journey there, I think, on trust, clarity of communication, transparency that um, certainly is well recognized and people are, I think, really working hard to sort of um, build over time. So I guess we need to collaborate more, communicate more, be more transparent and not stick in our own silos in order to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And that is something that we do a lot more nowadays. I think back again to my start of my career. I mean, these collaborations now that we're all engaged in are just so different. And again, the technologies that we're able to do it and the collaborations that we've learned even over the last 18 months through a dreadful pandemic, but the silver linings we've learned there of how to how to communicate in different ways. I think there are so many opportunities here. And I think most people are now trying to focus on that collaboration across the sector, across the supply chain, looking at problems um, more holistically, using external data and resources more effectively. I think these are all things that will help us um, solve this issue and the issues that are to come. In terms of your future work in this area, what's the role for the IFT as we move forward? Our focus will continue to be to advocate for sound science. We, you know, advocate actually for more science. I mean, one of the things we've been very involved in over the last two years is raising the awareness within the U.S. about the lack of investment in food science in this country on a public level. There is um, a dramatic need for more learning, more basic understanding in the sciences that can then be applied by the sort of the food technologists, whether they be in uh, universities or industry. That's one area and, and doing it in areas that will benefit you know, our ability to provide that safe, sustainable food supply. As I mentioned before, encouraging our expertise we have in our volunteers. We have so many people who volunteer for activities, whether they be here in the U.S. or around the world, and tapping those in terms of being able to do and help things, as I mentioned before, and particularly in developing countries. It's encouraging and fostering the sort of the entrepreneurial spirit of innovation, which uh, 
you know, is amazing to see. In fact, here in Chicago, where I currently live, not surprisingly, because it is the sort of center of the food industry of the United States, it always has been from the days of the railways. But it is amazing how many startup companies there are. People think about Colorado and California for the startups and to some degree the East Coast, but there are hundreds, if not thousands, of entrepreneurs, small startup companies um, that are focusing on opportunities. So it's both a business opportunity as well as a contribution to the challenge. So and that's one of the things we encourage with an IFT with some of our challenges that we've put out in terms of food and solving the problems of the food as well as some of the um, things we do at our annual meeting. There is so much opportunity and, and back to the prior comment, collaborating with many of the other different stakeholders. We tend to think of our stakeholders, you know, predominantly as the industry, the academic and the government circles. But as I said, we more and more are involved with some of the people who've historically been, certainly maybe not our, but the food industry's biggest critic, some of the consumer groups, you know, activity there. We recently uh, had a three-day workshop on the dietary guidelines, which was focused not on are the dietary guidelines right or wrong. It was now what do we do to actually put them into practice because people aren't following the dietary guidelines. So what are we doing wrong here? How do we get them to do that? That needs everybody. So it's very similar to the specific issue of climate change. I'm sure if you'll pardon the pun, plenty of food for thought in that interview, and what struck me is the optimism that yes, it's bad, but we can and will come through this. So hopefully we can all do our part, whether it's through our work or our personal choices and lifestyles. And that brings us to our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton, who is at the Stonex office in Dublin in Ireland. This week sees uh, dairy butter futures uh, lower uh, on the financial markets basically seems to be a bit of a reaction to uh, collections being up in the likes of France this week. Cream prices still remaining relatively strong in line with July and August, but seem to see a relaxing in prices in butter. August, September butter, pretty much around the same level as, as last week, around the 40-40 level. Quarter four butter, on the other hand, is down about 100 euros on the week to around the 40-90 level. Quarter one is down around 80-85 euros on the week to 40-80 level. And then quarter two is down around 70 euros on the week to the 40-90 level. Skimmel powder, on the other hand, has been more positive. I guess the tenders uh, coming back into the market has sellers backing off a little bit, which has caused uh, on average about 50 euros uh, rally in skimmel powder across the curve. August, September is up around 45 euros on the week to the 25, 60, 65 level. Quarter four skimmel powder is up around 45 euros also on the week to the 25, 80, 85 level. Quarter one is up around 60 euros on the week to the 26, 10 level. And quarter two of next year is up around 55 euros on the week to the 26, 10 level as well. Whey has uh, also seen prices up a bit uh, from around the 9.25 level last week to closer to the 9.60 level this week. I seem to be more buying coming into the market. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for another show. Next week, believe it or not, we will be in September. And probably time to start on the Christmas shopping if you have children. Because here in the UK, there are already warnings that there may be a shortage of toys because of the problems of transportation, which here is being blamed on a combination of the pandemic and Brexit. 
so it certainly doesn't apply to all countries. But I'll be headed online shortly to try and get some things, and then to try and find a place to put them all that won't be discovered. My office is one option, but it's so cluttered that I won't discover them either, and it's quite likely the presents will be still there unfound in 2030. Still, those are not really major issues when you consider all of the news around the world right now, whether it's climate change or evacuations taking place. So on that note, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and that you'll join us again next week when we'll be talking about cheese and yogurt, among other things. So, wherever in the world you may be, have a great week, take care, stay safe, and, as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>